Okay, this is musicians having coffee and talking about stuff, but the coffee is not mandatory, you know, if you got a <laughs> caffeine thing. Anyway, yeah, just uh, we're getting together and talking about stuff with Michael Ormardian. How you doing, Omar? Fine, man. How about you? You oh, doing good? Great, doing great. Yeah. Yeah, man, it's been a while. I haven't seen you for a while, bro. I know, it's been too long. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. yeah last time we saw each other... Well, let's see. I mixed some stuff in your studio yeah. for my Life and yeah. Times record. It's been like three years. I think at least three years, hasn't it? Or something like something that. Something like that. And then, yeah. then I brought that. Uh, we were doing some uh, open mic nights at City on a Hill, right. Nashville, with a bunch of artists right. and local right. people, and some of them were like outstandingly good. And so I brought yeah. one of them over to to meet you and Terry, and uh, yeah, that right. was one of the last times we yeah that's saw each cool. other. But uh, yeah, yeah, so what are you up to, man? grandkids having yeah. some fun yeah we uh, we have a third on our way i've All been right. doing you know, i've been doing some i've been doing some recording it's like you know in today's uh environment uh you have to love the project because you don't know where it's going to end right so i tend to be a little bit more uh, discriminatory when it comes to what i'm going to take on because if I don't love what I'm doing, I don't know what the ending is going to be like because I don't know if there's any record companies or whatever it is. So right. I, if I if I have something that I really enjoy, I don't really care about what happens afterwards. It's just the joy of the project. So yeah. it's a very different paradigm than probably the way we did things 20, 30 years ago where we, we had a functioning record company with marketing and promotion, all that kind of stuff. And you went, well, at least we have a shot at at seeing something happen so right yeah so that's kind of that's kind of the new thing for me it's like if i love it i'll do it i've got a documentary coming up that i'm going to do some scoring you know uh, on it's after the first of the year and i'm working right now on a very cool project with a guy named stephen bliss he's a mm. messianic jew uh and he's doing this incredible album with a lot of ethnic elements i played the duduk on it and and we have bazooki and all kinds of stuff and it's a worship record but it's it's really a wash in older rock sensibilities mixed with middle eastern so it's a really fun project because steve's a great songwriter and huh. so that's been kind of a fun project i'm doing right now that's and cool. we're almost i'd say we're about a week from mix so we started late summer uh and and we're about done well, so, that's pretty fast. Yeah, I can't. Cool. I can't let that go, man. Okay. That, that you played okay. the. You stepped in what the what you played the what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hang on. I'll show you. I'll show you what it is. Okay. The Bears. Did you watch the, the Bears, Bears on the? Yeah, the Bears. The, uh, the duduk is an Armenian instrument uh, that dates back wow a long time ago, and it's made out of apricot wood. And uh, it is a, uh, you, you have to get a scale. I have an A and I have a B flat. And it's a, it's almost like a, somewhat of like an English horn mixed with a saxophone. It's just a weird sounding thing. You got to really? warm up the reed for a while. Otherwise, I'd go ahead and give you an idea of the sound. But it takes a little while to get everything warmed up. It's got kind of a cantankerous reed. And, uh, oh, yeah, but, yeah. But it's it's a really cool thing. You uh, there's a McCartney did a song. Oh, and I can't remember the name of it. It was a, a girl's name, and he had Gasparian, this famous doo-doo player from Armenia, play on it. It's a gorgeous instrument. Sting mm. did it, used it also, 
And being Armenian, I kind of got interested in this about two years ago. Uh, the, the hardest part is half holes. You know, you've got your holes that right. are, you know, regular scale. But then when you want to get a half, you got to just get the right off the hole just to get the right half step. And that's the trickiest part of it. Right. Wow. So, yeah. So it's a major scale, you know, and you can use it in any way you want. So, yeah. So I used that. We had Bazooki. Chris Rodriguez played on it. And we had Lonnie Wilson on drums. We had, we've had all kinds of people come in and do some interesting things on it. So it's been fun. Yeah. That's great, man. You track it at your place or? No, we tracked at a, a place called, uh, oh gosh, no, I can't. I'm trying to remember the, yeah, uh, Latitude. Latitude Sound out in uh, Leaper's Fork. Mike Latanzi's place. Oh my okay. gosh. Great, what a huh? beautiful studio in mm. the middle of nowhere. Right. <laughs> 19 foot. I mean, he had a, he had a nine foot grand. He, I mean, he's the things decked out. You don't even have to bring instruments. He's got everything known to man and he's got two consoles. He's got a Neve and an SSL sitting next to each other. Wow. And an API sitting over here for monitors. So, I mean, it's, it's a pretty incredible place. Yeah. And it's called Latitude Sound. Yeah. There's not very many studios left, are there? In no. Nashville? Uh, no, absolutely not. I mean, when I think about, came here in '93 and uh, immediately uh, got involved in the session playing thing, and there was all. I mean, there, there were so many places, and they're just closing down left and right because. You know, yeah, you were you were playing. I thought you were only producing by then. No, when I came here, it was kind of an it was a kind of a interesting experience because I, Terry Christian, who was my engineer at the time. That's our uh, connect. We, yeah, yeah, yeah. We 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 both decided to move here because L.A. was becoming computer city. Everything was computer. When Jeff Picaro is programming drums, then you know you got a problem. I mean, <laughs> right. you're, seriously, seriously, right. you know you got a problem. Yeah. And when there's not a bass player to be found on a session, and you're playing synth bass, you know we got a problem. And yeah. so, I'm just too old school, and and we just decided, hey man, we got to go to a place, and I'm not a big country fan but i felt like there were things that were kind of moving a little bit away here there were other types of music that were being recorded yeah we were coming out terry and i were coming out pretty regularly in the last few years before like in, in 90 91 92 somewhere in there we were coming back and forth to work on amy grant's records and gary chapman and different, different people yeah yeah and even though our wives were never here we we came here and we enjoyed it so much it took a little while for my wife to warm up to the idea of moving here and yeah. um, and now she realized it was a great move but musically speaking when i got here uh i met tony i, I went to tony brown who was at mca with the mark wright who was uh, who's also at the time at mca and i just said hey guys i said i'm here uh and they said they knew who i was and i said look i'm not here to take over anything i said i just want to do whatever is available i said and uh I know some people who came here thinking I'm going to take over this town, and they ended up leaving in a couple of years because it's not that kind of a place. Right, yeah, yeah. And as a result, I guess it wasn't even – it was just something that I thought, you know, there's no need to come in and go, hey, I've had all the yeah, – I've done all this. So I think I deserve – I there was none of that. I mean, I just – that's not me anyway. But the bottom line is is that immediately I, they called. I, I ended up on some sessions for Tony and, and Mark, and then the word got out. And then the musicians who – no musicians, uh, you know, I, they said this guy, you know, have him play on the stuff. And I ended up playing on a lot of stuff and it was, kind Oh, of wow. Fun. That's cool. The first yeah, time, the uh, I think the first time we met, I think was at a session 
in 95 yeah i had just i was i mean i think i was right out of the car i mean i just moved here and uh terry said hey come down man omar's uh directing the nashville symphony in like studio a of you know the the hugest studio i've ever seen i think was that the belmont so the, the church converted studio or was this something else or was this at rca i think Maybe it was at R- rca yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely and, and chet atkins and vince gill came in and i was like a fly on the wall while you, know you guys were tracking you know, those that, solos you know what that was that was the olympic record for the the atlanta olympics right because that's what we did we do uh they uh, Tony Bryan asked me to produce it, and we had all these country artists and all these different people on it. You know, I went, we went to Texas and recorded Willie Nelson, which was really cool. Wow, I mean, that's amazing. These are, I, I met a whole new, Trisha Yearwood, you know, Garth Brooks, all these new people that I had met. And, you know, because, like, like I said, I wasn't really a great country fan, but then, boy, these people were so good. I mean, you know, they were just... Yeah great talents yeah know, great talent that's where i met you because we were doing i remember we were doing orchestral stuff absolutely yeah that, yeah, was, that was such a cool thing to witness man yeah and we would have done that about 95 i believe is when we were cutting that yeah yeah that's so. when i that was the year i moved here hey for those yeah. who of you who do not know michael so well um uh, man well you know multi-grammy winning uh producer amazing composer and keyboardist uh with a Tremendous history. I mean, uh, man, I don't know where you want to start, but we want to hear all about it. We want to hear everything. Well, it's it's nice to have a history because it's like, you know, it, there was a time where you could develop a history. Right. <laughs> that made sense. You know, I mean, I, I really I have compassion for people who are trying to enter into this thing now because you're trying to take steps that lead to a certain form or shape of what you want to do. And, and you don't have the obvious places where you can just go, this is how I ascend. If I do this, right. I get to this, I get to this. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, there's like a not, not, a, not the structure that there was. Yeah. So yeah. for me, as a Chicago boy, I came out of Chicago, and I knew very early on that there obviously there was nothing going on in Chicago except for jingles. There was a jingle business. And I had no interest in that. And and when you think about, it, I mean, this I grew up in the, uh, the I was born in the '40s. I grew up in the '60s. '60s when the Beatles came in, that was a big deal. Man. That yeah, was, that was big. Yeah. And I yeah. remember uh, listening. I would listen to jazz. I would just listen. I said, "This is what I really want to do." And I started playing when I was a young, very young. My parents didn't understand what that was because we really didn't have any musicians in the family. But early on, it was, you know, I, I was able to go to a piano and plunk out tunes at, you know, four years old or five years old or whatever it was. And my aunt, who had a piano in her house, we didn't have a piano in our house. I'd walk to my aunt's house and I'd play piano. And I remember she said, you need to get some piano. I said, okay. The teacher would come over and she puts a piece of classical music and I would start improvising. And she had a ruler. She'd smack me on my knuckles and go, right. we don't improvise. We, we don't, don't improvise. do that. We don't do that. And I thought, you know, and, and I was, I kind of was on my own. There wasn't anybody, there was no reinforcement from within my family or anything. I just, I just kept pursuing it, pursuing it. And I'd spend a lot of time just learning things like how to write, write music, how to to arrange. I was doing that in high school. And And so you were uh, totally self-taught with all that stuff? Well, mostly I had, I had piano lessons and there was a guy named, uh, uh, Westberg, I forget his first name, and I feel terrible. Business. That's the 
perils of being 76 as you forget <laughs> right your excuse but i remember in high school this guy he he uh he taught me it was very he taught me har harmonies and he taught me in an interesting way he he had a vibe sitting there he gave me four mallets and he would say give me a d13 plus whatever with four notes i want you to to play the four notes that would let me know that that's the chord that you're playing and i learned wow. with having just four mallets and how to structure harmonies how to do extensions on chords and that had a whole lot to do with just my brain clicked with that and even though i was writing pop and stuff there was this whole jazz part of it that really expanded the way i thought about chord structure right and but it still remained that there was nothing in chicago that would support what i wanted to do because right. i would pick up albums as you probably did when you were younger a, a vinyl album and you'd look at the back and you go it's either recorded in liverpool new york la or nashville that those were the four destinations that i would see on all those record jackets and i said i have to pick one because there's nothing here mm -hmm. and yet i didn't even know what i was picking because i didn't know what that meant by going somewhere because in my mind I wanted to write songs. I had no idea I was going to end up as a session player. I, that, that wasn't even in my thought process. Oh, so really? You were a songwriter? That was huh. what I was thinking. That's what I thought I was. Yeah. And what I didn't realize is that because I was playing so much, I was a player. You know, I, I could play and I had, a, I had decent ears. I could hear stuff. So I got on a plane in 1967 and went out to L.A. with nothing but a few thousand dollars of savings from working and absolutely not one contact of anybody anywhere. I just got off the plane in LA and I started, I got a, got into a hotel just for a couple of days and, and I just said, I'm going to do this. And it took about four years, the transition. And a lot of those early memories are pretty much lost because it was such a whirlwind. I got a couple of jobs. I got a job in, in an insurance company, got a job in a bank just to keep things oiled financially, just enough to get by. But I I said, I'll do anything for absolutely nothing. I had to have, the, you had to have that kind of mindset. I mm. think what's lost today is that, oh, no, I, I have a college education. I'm not gonna go to a session and say, I'm gonna do this for nothing because I deserve to be paid. Mm -hmm. For me, it was, if you wanna do this, and Terry, my engineer, I mean, he was sweeping floors at Sunset Sound. I mean, that's how he started. Right, right. You know that you know that kind of history because we've sure. all had that kind of history where yeah. where nothing was expected. Uh you you didn't expect something for free and and you knew that you'd have to work your butt off to to get into the just to get your foot in the door. Yeah. Whatever door that was. Terry used to uh give us uh studio time in the middle of the night sometimes. Right. Like so we'd wow. go in at midnight and record till six because they would yeah. let us. He That's would let pretty, us in. You that's know. Pretty. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I mean, yeah. it was yeah. cool. You know, I really appreciate that, yeah. but yeah. that's how hungry we were also, well, you know, yeah. you had to be hungry yeah. for it. Yeah. And, and because you read all those jackets and because you saw the volume of music, you saw there is an industry out here that I might be able to plug into. I mean, right. because there was lots of music and the kind of music that you go, man, I dig this stuff, man. Everything, the Beatles stones, I mean, the, uh, sure, the stacks, yeah, man. stacks, Motown, <laughs> All the Dude, great music. 68 to 72, man. 
Come on. Yeah. It's wow. the best. It's the best. I think my era. favorite era of music really, as far as recording and the way things were done was like the seventies when you had Led Zeppelin and you had Al Green and you had all the, I mean, you just had all this cornucopia yeah. of wonderful stuff. And the only way you could record it was put people in a room and put microphones on instruments and record. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, something that is pretty much, uh, you know, I guess maybe because of, of budgets for records and the way people do things, let's just get a computer and d devise some kind of, you know, track here. Right. But so, I mean, the early days, uh, I got plugged into a church, which was very helpful church on the way. I, I uh, met some people there. There was no, what, nothing came out of that from an industry standpoint, but mm -hmm. what came out of that was, was a feeling of security that there was a community around me that was supporting me and helping me as I was trying to help other people too. And it and took my mind out, off. They were yeah. out in the Valley, right? Yes. Yeah. Church on the way. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. That's where I grew up. Yeah. In the Valley. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, one thing led to another. I remember I got a call. I don't remember how it came about, but it was uh, Clark Burroughs, who was one of the original high, high lows, the singing group, the high lows. My got uncle, my was, my uncle yeah. was in the high lows. What? Yeah. Clark, yeah, Clark. Burroughs, the, the, the high singer, Clark. Yeah. Clark called me out of what? nowhere. I don't, yeah. He called me out of nowhere. He said, he said his wife, Marilyn, was doing a record or and she want, she's trying to put a band together. And there's Kenny Loggins and Waddy Wachtel. And they wanted to know if I wanted to try out to see. And I said, sure. So I went over to his house. He was over on Valley Vista or somewhere in the, somewhere in Studio City or wow. whatever. And I started playing a little spinet piano. And there was Kenny playing an acoustic and Waddy's playing an acoustic. And she's singing. He says, yeah, you're in a group. So we started. And I didn't realize your uncle was a, That's incredible. Yeah, he was who, the. Who, who, who was he? He was the romantic was baritone. He was the uh, Bob Morse. The, yeah, Bob Morris, of yeah, course. Yeah. Yes, of course. Of course, of course. So, Morris, of course. So that was one of the earliest, earliest things that I remember was doing this. But there was Kenny and there was Waddy. And then the next thing I knew was that Kenny said uh, Jimmy Messina of Poco was forming a group with him. Do you want to play keyboards for us? I said, sure. Loggins and Messina. So we got together and started rehearsing putting a band together. I didn't realize that rehearsing nine or 10 songs for a, a year would be more than I could possibly take, but it was like a year of rehearsing. <laughs> really? What, any was, of their hit? Was that any songs that we would know? Oh yeah. It was, you know, mama don't dance, your dad don't rock and roll, Danny's song, all these things that uh, house at Pooh corner, all that stuff. Came all out that of that. stuff. Wow. All that came out of that. Yeah. So that was, that was pretty much my first foray into kind of doing studio things though there were some other things going on but what was happening was there was a second track that was going on there was a a gentleman by the name of jerry mclean who became a friend of mine i don't know how it happened it was probably through the church but he he and his a, a guy named truett pratt had a deal with bob alcivar who was the vocal arranger for the fifth dimension to do three sides it was typical Back in those days, you're not going to cut an album. Let's just cut three singles. And if something happens, you rush an album into existence, right? Right. Okay. So I'm rehearsing with Loggins and Messina, and this is going on. And I wrote a song with Jerry and Truett, and it was going to be part of the thing. And Jerry said to Bob, 
I want Omar to play on the track. He says, I, I don't know who this guy is. He says, I can't. He says, I got Hal Blaine, Joe Osborne, Dean Parks. I've got them on. The, I can't take a chance on it. And Jerry, my good buddy, I found out later said, if this doesn't happen, we're not doing this at all. I had no idea he went to the mat for me like this. Wow. So I'm very aware of these players because I've been reading album jackets and I've been listening to music. And so I'm going, wait a minute, I'm going to be in a session with these cats. So we were at the old CBS down on, it, it, it was a studio at the time. They had two studios on Vine, Hollywood and Vine, Sunset and Vine, excuse me. And, uh, and so I walk in, I think I didn't sleep at all the night before because I was so nervous, but thankfully we did the song that I wrote with them. So I was familiar with it and we got through it. And Hal Blaine said, I want your number. And Joe Osborne said, yeah, I want your phone number too. And I said, really? Okay. So I played the whole session. I, I was nervous. I didn't know whether I did well or not, but I do know that right after the session, both Hal and Joe took me to the union by local 47, got me signed up and got me a, a answering service. And I was booked on seven dates the following week as wow. a result of that. So this is going on. This is a whole new track for me. Whereas, you know, it was, you wonder because the stuff that's thrown at you, sometimes you go, holy cow, they want me to do what? I mean, and every studio musician deals with that, especially in LA circa 70, three or 72 or whatever it was because you had everything from, you know, jazz rock, you know, schmaltz, every, everything you could possibly imagine. Right. And you didn't know where you were going and you didn't know what you're about to, to take on. So it was a really quick trial by fire within a year. But the nice thing was, is that that experience really exposed me to so much music. Yeah. I remember, I remember one session, Al Caps, he's a famous arranger back in those days. He calls me. I get a call from the answer. Al Caps wants you to do two days at, you know, United Western. I said, okay. I don't know who it's for. I walk into the studio. There's a nine-foot grand piano sitting in the middle of the floor, and there's a 60-piece orchestra around the piano. And I'm, I walk in, and, and my head, my I start my head starts getting hot. <laughs> Why is the piano sitting right in the center and why is there an entire orchestra around the piano there's no singer in this room and i said al what are we doing he says oh we're doing a whole thing with you playing piano with an orchestra right i said al i said and he hands me a thing of music that's this thick with nothing but written written notes and i'm going what i mean i panicked I said, what? the only thing I did was I recognized all the titles. I said, Al, you called me two weeks ago. Why didn't you get this to me so I could prepare? He says, ah, you can handle it. I said, dude, I said, this, this thing, this is like sight reading. I, I can't even describe to you what I'm talking about. I mean, it was like, it wasn't Rachmaninoff, but it was complicated enough that you go, I don't have any time to run through. I'm supposed to sight read this stuff. Right. I, I said, Al. I said, I don't know what to tell you. I said, I don't know if I can. He said, I tell you what. He says, do you know these songs? I said, yeah. He said, fake it. So I walked into the room and I had to run at once and I started writing chords down all the way through. And I faked my way through the whole thing. And they were very pleased. Let me tell you something. From that moment on, I said, I want to know who 
I'm going into play for it. From that moment on, I said, I don't ever want to be caught like that again. And I mean, that was scary stuff because you could imagine the price. Of right. That. Yeah. Anyway, so because of this early thing with the studio thing, I went, you know what? I have the choice of going on the road with Loggins and Messina for the rest of my life for whatever that would cost. Right. I mean, for whatever I would make. Or I've got this ability here to see a real earning potential that could really, I could do well. And I chose this. It, Logism, both, both Kenny and, and Jimmy were pretty miffed that I said, I gotta, I've got to do this because, you know, well, we've been rehearsing, you know, for over a year. I said, yeah, but we were rehearsing 10 songs. I said, come on. I said, you know, I, I, I said, I can't do, I got to have something new to stimulate. Yeah. Anyway, it was cool because I kept, they would call me for their subsequent albums. So at least, they they uh, they were okay with that, and I did some stuff with Kenny later on. But those are the early days, and and like I said before, without that going on, those opportunities just wouldn't have been there. You know, yeah. I mean, when I think about all the people that I run into, oh yeah, I just went to engineering school. I said, okay, yeah. So uh, how many sessions? I really haven't done anything yet, but I've got a degree in. And I'm thinking, then Terry Christian comes along, and what do you? Be, I've swept floors, and I line machines and i did second engineering for for years and then i became a first engineer I said, that's the guy i'm interested in because they've got miles on the, they know what they're doing yeah and i yeah. remember as, as a matter of fact i remember uh when prince was producing a lot of records you know terry did some stuff with prince oh i know i, anyway, I, I actually went down there to sunset sound when he yeah. was well, the and he had the whole. Yeah, it's pretty yeah. wild, huh? Yeah. But he told he told we were here at this room when a phone call came to Terry, and it was from Minneapolis, and it was uh, an engineer that was working with Prince. This was, I don't know, maybe fifteen years ago, sixteen years ago. Yeah. Asking Terry, how do you mic drums? Because he had never mic drums, but he had been working with Prince for years. Right. Never knew how to mic a set of drums. Yeah. Because he didn't have to, because he had the Lin One Thousand. He just sit there and play out. You yeah. play a groove, and he'd write his songs to it. Now, this is just subjective. I love Prince, love Stevie Wonder. What records gives you the most satisfaction? For me, it's Stevie Wonder because I hear real drums, real bass, real everything. Yeah, Prince, fantastic songs, fantastic production, but it's all drum machine. And there's just something that doesn't live on a record with drum machine. I love plenty of songs that have drum machine on it. Yeah. But when I think about classics, what's in my mind as a classic, it usually doesn't include that kind of artificial production. Yeah. So that's just, keep, that's just me. Yeah. Just I me. keep wanting to do sessions even without a click. Cause most of my favorite records weren't done with a click. Thank you know, you. tell me about the, your sessions with Steely Dan. Did the, what year was that? And did they do stuff to a click or did, was it? No, just, no, no. Uh, the, the kind of click we had back then was that nauseating thing to do in film with that real weird beep. Oh, so yeah. it was the beep move. Yeah. Gosh. It was terrible. There was no reason to, and, and drummers were so solid that it, it, you know, that was part of the skills. Part of the skill was not just playing. Part of the skill was listening. Part of the skill is paying attention to the groove, paying attention to the time. And, uh, I think that, you know, with Steely Dan, that would have been 70. I did Katie Lied. First thing I did with them was Pretzel Logic, then Katie Lied, and then Asia. 
And I want to say that that would have been 73, something like 73, 74, something like that. Man, I love those records. Katie lied particularly. Dude. Yeah. Dude. And what was fun about it, but I don't know how much fun it was for everybody. I, I would end up, like I knew that would happen to me too, is I would end up on, on doing, cutting a song maybe two or three different times with different drummers, different bass players. And I'm sure they tried different keyboard players with different combinations. Right. But, you know, they had come off of two pretty successful projects that was their band. And so I would sit there and go, why are they doing this? It didn't make any sense to me. Why are you abandoning your band? And that's another story I have about the Christopher Cross years is abandoning your band for studio players because I thought that they might lose something. But the thing is, is they were heading in a direction that required something different. And as, as they continued to evolve, it became more sophisticated. Yeah. And, and I think that the band would have had a hard time uh, following where their heads were at. Mm -hmm. Those were gratifying, but not fun sessions because every, every musician said, man, the music's great, but, you never knew you, where you stood. I mean, it, there was not much, hey, that's great. You know, the, it was just kind of like deadpan. It was just an odd thing. There was never a time when you were ever taken out to lunch or you guys want to go to dinner. It was, there was none, none of that, none of that dynamic that you would normally get used to. Hey, man, great session today. Let's go out and get a great Italian meal across the street or whatever. It, no, that was never, ever part of it. And so you even when Gad... It was interesting. It was when we did Asia, you know, Gad's doing that stuff at the end, and I'm we're sitting there going, look, Larry Carlton, Chuck Rainey. <coughs> and so Steve you're Gadden. all in the room together doing those songs with no so track. And he's just like, you're looking, and his, and his hands are going, and we're all just looking at this guy, and we're going, what in God's name is going on? Because we only ran it once or twice, and we started cut. Really? And it was the second take they took, they kept, which was very much not their modus operandi. That would normally you'd be work it and work it, dude. We're going bum, 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 bum. but we're missing it because we're watching. All of us were just mesmerized. And they said they didn't like Steve Gray, Steve Gad. That that was their assessment. Was that was the only time they ever used him because we never we don't really like the way he plays. And you're going, what are you talking? <laughs> But wow. we would even even after that take, we'd walk in and listen, and they'd be going, "That's that's good," and you never got anything other than that. And it was just the weirdest. And I liked the guys. I mean, I was over at their at their houses. I was transcribing stuff. I was you know doing the you know bringing charts to the sessions in the early days. Yeah. But I don't remember a meal. I don't remember a cup of coffee. I don't remember. I don't mean remember much of anything because it was never about that. It was just let's get this done and then we'll yeah, see you later. We're just yeah. going to do the work. No hang. No hang. Yeah. No. But hey, when you did Ricky, don't lose that number. Was that was that all session guys or wasn't that some of the band still? It was all session guys. Skunk Baxter was the only guy that I was aware of that when we got to that point, outside of. Walter would sometimes put on bass, but not often because the bass players were so good there would be no reason to replace it. Fagan would add synth or he'd add a thing, but I played mostly all the acoustic piano. Stuff. Yeah. And were they, uh, were, was it, in, I'm trying to get the picture, like, so is, is Fagan singing a scratch vocal while it's going down or what's happening? Yeah, sometimes when you're, when you're running it, 
because we would work at ABC Dunhill, which would became Lion's Share later. And the room that we'd work in, some of the stuff, there wasn't an actual vocal booth. When we'd work at, we worked at uh, Producers Workshop. We worked at a couple other places that I, I can't remember exactly where, but those had, but I think, I think, I don't recall uh, a lot of them having vocals going when we're doing it, but, but I'm not sure. I, I could be wrong about that. That's interesting. Uh, but, yeah. Hey, yeah, tell me about when we were together, when I brought uh, Victoria, that girl singer over there, you were telling some really cool stories about the Warner Brothers days, about all the all those producers being there on the same floor. Oh, man, I'm telling you, that was, well, Ted Templeman, you know, the Doobie yeah. Brothers, Van Halen. Yeah, this Gary would be Gass. like in the 80s sometime now? The who's who, yeah, it was like, we. Well, it was from, it, I, I got over there about 77 Till about eighty three or eighty four, and you had Russ Titleman, you know, who was Stevie Winwood and, and Eric Clapton, and yeah, I mean, it's just Lenny Warnocker, you know, all the stuff that he did. And yeah, sitting these, and it was the funnest bunch of people that you can imagine. It was right. like, it was just the coolest thing where everybody supported everybody. If you needed something, what was cool for me because I was a player. I'd get called by Lenny, hey, I'm doing a Clapton thing. You mind coming and playing on it? So, of course, I don't mind playing. Or Teddy would need me for a piano overdub here or there. So, it was kind of like this. It was There were 12 of us. There were a couple of new cats. A couple. Of, there was a couple of ladies that were in the group. And it was, it was really, it was about 12 of us. We'd meet every Wednesday morning. And Mo Austin, who was the president, would come down and sit with us. And, and he was the man. He was the, he was the he was the cat. Mo Austin was the guy, nicest man. Evelyn was great. His wife. We they'd have us over to their house on weekends with the whole A&R staff, and we have barbecues and swimming with the kids. We bring our families. It was a very very cool atmosphere for a record company. It was a unique record company. I can't imagine having a hang with Walter Yetnikoff or Clive Davis, where he'd invite all those A&R people for a barbecue. But Mo was that way. He was just a, a kind of a family guy, and he would come. To, he would, I'd be sitting in my office, and all of a sudden he'd come walking in, sit down, throw his feet on the desk. How you doing, man? And you know, and we just talk, just talk about stuff. It was very cool. And very you guys, cool. uh, all the producers were kind of had a healthy competition for number ones. Well, right? we it was it was it was fun. It was it was like it was like there was a lightness to it. You know, everybody wanted to do well. And that was just, you know, the more, the more that you had that, obviously the company was doing great. I mean, it was just a really good period of time where everybody was kind of banging on all cylinders and having success. That was the way it was. I was with ABC Dunhill uh, in the early days. Actually, I went from ABC Dunhill as an A&R guy, even though most of my time was spent in the studio, not really at meetings or whatever. But you had Three Dog Night, Steppenwolf's, Mamas and Papas. You had Jim Croce. You had all these people at this one company. And that company was run by a record person, not a lawyer, but a record person. And so Mo was a record person. Jay Lasker was a record person. It was very different. They'd come down and hang with you. They'd talk to you about stuff. You know, we're thinking about this. What do you think about that? I mean, it was just, yeah. It was like, a, it was really cool. Was Tell cool. me about uh, What a Fool Believes. Well, I, oh, yeah. So, so Teddy, <clears throat> Teddy had just finished the Doobie Brothers records. And what would happen when we'd finish a record, 
we would play it for the NR department and say, what do you guys think is the single? Right. Right. So, so Ma Austin calls down Lenny, Lenny Warnocker was the head of NR and Lenny said, there's a song that we need to listen to off the dupe. And Teddy's right in the room. I mean, obviously we're right all together. He's the guy that produced it. He said, Mo's thinking about releasing the song called What a Fool Believes. And so we're all listening. And even Teddy's like shaking his head like, I'm going, we know it's a good song, but what does this have to do with the Doobie Brothers? And all of us said, that's not a hit. <laughs> every one of us, every single person, no, that's, that's not it. You don't want to, you don't want to put that out. I'll, ne- I'll never, <laughs> I'll never forget. Mo comes down. He says, I could give a, what you guys think he said we're putting it out anyway and we said well, why are you asking us man <laughs> so he put it out he put it out and of course it just stormed up to you know it was like ridiculous yeah it yeah it was number one for many weeks wasn't it it showed you what do, what do we know right. talk about fools yeah what a fool believes yeah what a <laughs> fool us fools believed it wasn't a single <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's part of the cool thing it's like you know there's always someone that goes you guys are crazy or I'd say, no, I believe that that's it. Or someone else said, that's what was cool about it. Did you yeah, have one of those? Did you have any of those with Christopher Cross? Well, well, when we had Ride Like the Wind, which became a big hit, Mo wanted to put out Sailing. And the entire a it says, too soon for that song. And he did the same thing. He says, I don't care what you guys think we're putting it. And we're going, what are you asking us for? <laughs> and he puts it out. And of course, it you know, it went to the top. And, yeah. and it did very well. Yeah. And you know you're 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 trying to figure out the mood of the musical where the country is musically, right? And it was interesting because when I first presented the that was another thing about the A department that, that I wanted to just say, if you wanted to do something, no one said no. So when Chris, when they he kept sending cassettes before I got there. And when I got there, I had heard Sailing, Ride Like the Wind, and a couple other things for the very first time. Because Lenny said, oh, we got that Christopher Cross guy who's been sending stuff. He sent some news. He sent a couple of new songs. I said, man, I said, this is good. And I'm the only one in the room that's reacting. And they're going. going. He said, well, you want to do it? I said, yeah. He said, so you do it. And that was the, the whole attitude. It was just, that was, if you want to do it, you do it. So well, I don't know what your question was, but... So, uh, but Oh, I was yeah. wondering if you if you ever uh, were really fired up about a single and nobody else was, and you pushed it through. Oh, everybody was. Yeah, everybody was. Yeah, we we always had that experience. But I learned after a while to let the people. Oh, I was going to say it was hard to to decide what the mood of the country was at the time of the Christmas. It was all punk, man. Debbie Harry. It was the Cars. It was all that kind of stuff. You know, it was just really punk music. So when I presented the album to Russ Tyrett, who was the head of promotion. He called me, he says, we're going to delay the release of this record. I went, oh boy, what does that tell you? We were all concerned. And he released it six months later. And when he released it, it boom. And what happened was a program director in Miami uh, got a hold of the record and he heard right like the one he said, my people here in Miami will like that spaghetti Western thing going on with that thing. Boom, ba-dum, ba-dum. <laughs> and he Western. was right. And it broke out of Miami. And he said, people were calling in going, what is that song? What is that song? It was all Hispanic people calling in. So to try to figure out the mood of the country, there's always a pocket that 
says, no, we want this. And it changes the whole thing. Wow. It had horn, It had horns on it. No one was cutting with horns. Nobody. I mean, it was just the whole mood of the country was punk and that kind of attitude. You know, it was just that thing. And that's not a, that's not a feather in my cap. I'm just going, I like the music. I don't know what's going to happen with this. I just want to go in and do it. So you don't know whether you're making the right decision. Or not. It's just, it's, if you look, if you like it, you do it. And everybody in the AR department, that was it. If you like it, you go ahead and do it. Yeah. So that's that great. Yeah. It's really a cool, a cool atmosphere. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you got to be following what you love. You know, it's yeah. interesting in my life, you know, I kept trying to break into the business. Oh, in fact, I remember you were working with Julio Iglesias, I think, in the 80s, oh right? Oh, my gosh, yes. Yeah, and Terry called me up and said, hey, man, I, this is a rare opportunity, but Julio Iglesias is looking for songs. Because Terry liked my songwriting, you know, and mm -hmm. so so I, I wrote three songs for Julio Iglesias. They, they exist yeah. somewhere. And Terry said he picked, Terry picked the best one and sat down with Julio and played it for him. And I, he said he listened to about three bar, three or four bars and said, I cannot sing this song. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. Terry well, was always trying to help me out, you know. But, but he would probably couldn't sing the song, if you know what I mean. He probably couldn't <laughs> handle the, what you written vocal. I don't know. I mean, I was trying to write. I listened to some of his stuff. But yeah. it was just yeah. funny. Everything that I tried to do, to try to make money and try to make it in the music business. It, it just didn't work. I even like, Yeah, it's such a great, I mean, what you did was so cool though, man. Was oh, well, yeah, ultimately, was so cool. ultimately yeah. it, all, it all worked well, out, but it was I mean, when I kind of chucked all that stuff yeah. and just yeah. went like, well, I'm yeah. just going to do something crazy that I'll, that yeah. I just love. Maybe nobody's going to like it, but, yeah. and that well, was when we, good, I mean, you're know, such a great musician. I mean, you know, the thing is, is that, you know, well, like you said, I'm writing for Julio Iglesias, right? So when you do that, you're trying to tailor something that probably isn't you in, in its most pure form. And that's what the whole thing is about. Let's go write a song for so-and-so. Well, it's, I, I'm not really sure if I like, even like that kind of music, but I'll write a song. So, I mean, you, you know, the idea is to try to follow your own thing. Yeah. Which is your, the most authentic version of whatever you do. Yeah. And you did. And you did well with it. It just didn't have the marks of what everybody goes, this is the only path that was the only way you do this. You know, right. it's the only way you get this done. Yeah. You know, so it, it, yeah. So for me, it made sense because my brain, uh, I enjoyed the idea of assembling people, organizing things. Uh, I, enjoy, I enjoyed all the writing down lists. You know, this is what we have to do, making up interesting, like, stuff. Like, this is our overdub uh, calendar. And so I, I was just kind of, I'm wired that way a little bit. Wow. So so those kind of things, the organizing, pulling people together, making sure that the part is what, what you, make sure you play what you played on the first chorus and the second chorus, because that's a hook. Don't just play, you know, that kind of organizing. Yeah. So I was much more in the a pop organizer kind of guy, uh, whereas I wouldn't have been probably real good in a prog rock thing where you kind of go off. I mean, yeah. my, just my way my brain works, it's this a little tighter, tighter and more compartmentalized. I don't know if that makes any sense. But yeah, sure. It's sure. taken me a long time to figure that out, but that's kind of why I always gravitated towards production, even more than just being strictly a keyboard player, because there was something about mixing 
groups of people together and listening to what they do and see how it works. I, I always love that. I love that part of it. That's cool. And to answer your question, no clicks. We didn't do any clicks for a long time because the drummers were so stinking good. You didn't need a click. Yeah. And if it moved a little bit, it moved a little bit because it needed to move a little bit. Yeah. It was natural. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you want that feel. So what was it like? Uh, to, how'd you get this accordion gig with on Billy Joel's Piano Man? Piano Man. <laughs> I played accordion when I was four years old because that was the only instrument that my mom and dad could actually relate to. Uh huh. Because because uh, Armenian bands would have an accordion player, so you know, a clarinet or whatever. And so they got me started on that, which I didn't really enjoy, even though I got to learn how to play both, both you know, the left hand and the right hand. And uh, we were doing the uh, Piano Man al album, and I told Billy, I said, you know, I play accordion because he, he had harmonica and a couple things. He said, oh, really? That's yeah. And I happened to. I just borrowed one because I didn't have one out in L.A. I, when I got out there, it was like no banjos, no accordions, no, you know, none of that. But, but right. it's just, yeah, it's just one of those kind of things. And it just, it worked. You know, it just worked. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was, yeah. I worked on that record. I worked on that whole record with him. And you could tell right away, man, this cat, wow. I mean, what a songwriter. Yeah. Holy cow. What a yeah. songwriter. Yeah, yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. Edgy. Yeah edgy new yorker he he was up at my house uh in, a couple times during that project and stormy made him dinner and stuff like that and i remember i went to the bathroom he said stormy he said someday i'm gonna be better than your husband on the piano <laughs> I mean, and he meant it he said someday i'm gonna be you know and, and uh, he's he's a phenomenal player i mean i love he plays his own things but he's really good Oh yeah, Him, yeah, yeah, Elton John is a great piano player too, man. Wow. Oh yeah, whoa. The way man. those guys lock in in the track, you know, I've, I've come to really appreciate that. Like it's not yeah. complicated parts, but it's just really oh. comfortable, yeah, locked in, yeah. and feels really yeah. good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's not so easy yeah, to do. No, it is not easy to do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just wanted to ask you one more thing about your faith and your work yeah. and. You know, yeah. uh, you became a Christian when you were real young, right? Uh, 65, 1965. I was yeah. 20 years old. Yeah. 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 And then you brought that through the course of your entire career. That was always a... Well, it's it's always been my guide. It's it's always been my guiding thing. And, and it, it has colored everything that I am. And, and to me, it's about serving whether it be serving someone in the studio, serving someone who doesn't have something or whatever, it's always been part of, yeah. it's part of the way that wiring took place. I enjoyed being around people. I enjoyed about, you know, being encouraging or whatever I could possibly be. But, but my faith was really, it really came out of my grandmother in 1915. She was in Armenia and she lost her entire family to the uh, Ottoman when they came in and they, and they did a genocide. She, yeah. Had her wow. husband beheaded in front of her and had her daughters killed in front of her. And oh my she was made to graze on grass for months. She never talked about what they did to her personally, because if they let her live, I can only imagine what that woman went through when she was young. Mm -hmm. Came to the United States. And the one thing that I knew about her is that, that anybody who could be that forgiving of what, of anybody, of humanity, for what had taken place to her and did not color her in any way 
in bitterness, in retribution, trying to get even, or anger. I just watched her and went, this is marvelous. I've never seen it. I knew my mom explained to me what happened. She got remarried and had a, you know, my mom was born here, but she was yeah, remarried. So she, she was the example of something that I didn't know what it was. And then my grandmother, I would go to her house and she'd be reading her Bible and singing in her living room, you know, and she was a woman of faith. And I remember thinking, wow, that is amazing. Cause I had the potential of doing, of going off into 50 different directions as a young person. Cause that's what happens. There's so sure. many things fighting for your attention, whether right. it be whatever sex, drugs, drugs were always part of the scene in Chicago. When I go downtown, I play a club, everybody's taking drugs except for me. I didn't, I wasn't interested. Right. And, and I um, think in it's LA of, in the seventies, yeah. it must've been crazy. Yeah, and I just didn't, I mean, I just, it wasn't, it wasn't attractive to me because I valued a relationship that I had with the Lord that I didn't want to do anything to myself that would violate that yeah. thing. Right, totally. And my grandmother was the one who modeled that to me. In fact, the day that I did come to know Jesus, that was Christmas Day, 1965. I was upstairs in my house, and my whole family was over for dinner, for Christmas dinner. And my my cousin Chuck uh, was upstairs, and he was talking to me about Jesus. And the minute I accepted the Lord, my grandmother, who was downstairs, jumped up and ran into the kitchen. Said, my mother's name was Sophia. I said, Sophia. Your son just came to Jesus, and she was downstairs and didn't know anything about what was going on. And I wow. thought, if she's that connected to that that kind of thing, I want whatever that is. And that's there for anybody. That's right. there for anybody. God is waiting for a relationship from us. Yeah. And I find it very non. I find it non-restricting. I think it's freeing. It's not restricting. You know, right. I can't do. I can't. Do, no, no. Uh, I have a beautiful son, beautiful daughter-in-law. I have a beautiful daughter, son-in-law. And everybody gets along and everybody does really well. And I really credit that to the fact that we learn things about family, about relationship and about our relationship with the, with the father and, and yeah. passed it on. And we're beneficiaries of a very peaceful life as a result of, of doing that. Yeah. Yeah. I like the way Jesus says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how, how, how I how I would have gathered you, yeah. But you yeah. rejected the things that make for peace, yeah. Which amazing? is him. Yeah, he yeah. makes peace. Yeah. <laughs> it's and, where, and where our, there's turmoil, you know, he'll he'll calm the seas, and right. it's what would we do without that? And I I I I totally relate to that. It I think when when uh, people talk about the fear of the Lord, my fear of the Lord would is losing that. You know, I I, I wouldn't want to do anything (laughs) in any way. I mean, I know the Lord's always with you, but I I just want to be very careful about that relationship because it's so precious. His guidance. I remember when I didn't, when I didn't know the Lord, I went and saw a field of dreams, you know, in what, 88, 89, whenever it came out. And I came out of the movie theater going, man, if any voice ever spoke to me in the, in the cornfield, I'd do it. Yeah. And people were looked yeah. at me like I was nuts, you know, just like they do the guy in the movie. But it was really and and so I'm so thankful, you know, just to hear the Holy Spirit whispering guidance, you know. Cuz how how else are, we can go we can all go 50 million ways at any okay. time of our lives. Yeah. You know, I mean we have so many options. 
how do we know what's the best option? Lord, show us. And he does. And I, yeah. And I, and I think one of the biggest questions for me was, is we, we, we have to decide on our brief moments on this earth, what's going to happen in those years when we have this promise of, of an eternity with God, but there are requirements. And if we're going to say, I don't want to, I don't want to know about it. There's a point where you're going to have to know about it because it's either true or it's a big lie. And, and there's so much substantiating evidence of the truth of everything. I, I heard someone say, you know, there, there's prophecies in the Bible. All oh, the Bible is just a fantasy book. Really? It's a history book. It's a history of Israel. It goes all the way back to the beginning. <laughs> so to me, there has to be a place where you go, there has to be a solid something and I choose to believe this. And the thing is, is that unless you enter into a relationship with the Lord, you don't know the benefits of that. It's not make-believe. It's real. Yeah. I've seen healings. Right. I've seen people healed. Me too. I was healed. I was healed. Were you of really? Cancer. Yeah, of cancer. Wow. Yes. I've, I've seen Praise people God. who have walked out of a hospital going, I, I was supposed to die. I mean, you know, I, I, I don't want to risk it. Yeah. <laughs> and like you said, the fear of the Lord, you know, David said that was his goal. But you tell people fear of the Lord, I, I don't, that sounds oppressive. No, fear of the Lord is a, a healthy fear. Yeah. The beginning of wisdom. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. The beginning of wisdom. Yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Good stuff, man. Thank yeah. you, man. Yeah. That's awesome. Hey, I just wanted to tell you about this project I've been writing. Yeah, called God, It's called God Smuggler. Have you ever read God Smuggler by Brother Andrew? And I have heard about that. Yeah. Good, huh? Yeah, it's really good. I was reading it in my uh, Bible study group like early, early, early this year, actually. And I felt like the Lord dealt was dealing with me to start writing writing some songs based on it. Awesome. And so That's I've now I've got like a lot of material on it, and I'm just not sure. What you know, you mentioned something earlier about the, the creative process. Sometimes you're not always sure what it is. Yeah. You know, like yeah. I know I'm working on it, but I'm still trying it's to. It's going to be good. You know, it's going to be. If it's coming from you, it's got to be good. That's for sure. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks, man. Likewise, yeah. likewise. I just wanted to mention that to you. Just. Uh, oh, I'm pray. glad. I want to hear that. Yeah, pray about hear... that. Maybe I'll send you some things yeah. when it gets a little please. more developed. Yeah, yeah. please. Yeah. I would love to hear it. Yep. Cool, man. Well, all the best to you. Thank you Brother for having Omar. me. Yeah, you too, man. Yeah, you too, man. good to see I you. I enjoyed it. And I uh, hope to see you sooner than later, man. Me too. Come Thanks. on over, man. Let's hang. Let's Get hang. Some Sounds yeah. good. Sounds good. All right, brother. You're the all best. Right. Yeah. Thank you, you so much. Thanks for being a part, man. You got it, Neil. God, God bless, bless you. you, brother. Okay. Take, Take care. care. Bye. Mm -hmm.